Welcome to Marketing Demystified, the podcast that connects the dots for business leaders to drive revenue through effective marketing strategy. We chat with marketing experts on different topics that will help you ramp up your revenue. We stream live on LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube, and you can listen to us on your favorite podcast platforms. Marketing Demystified, the podcast, is presented to you by GrowGetter, your partner in growth marketing. And here's today's episode. Hello, everyone. Are you ready to be inspired, informed, and empowered with actionable tips to transform your marketing game, you're in the right place. Welcome to Marketing Demystified. I'm your host, Jen Mancusi, CEO and co-founder of GrowGetter, your growth marketing partner. Understanding your audience is so important to driving business results. It really is the first step to any marketing initiative, strategy, or campaign. But what are the best ways to understand your audience? To discuss the topic, I'm joined today by Rand Fishkin, founder of SparkToro. Welcome to the show, Rand. Hi, Jen. Thanks for having me. So great to have you. Thanks for joining us today. Um, I'm excited to talk about this topic. I think it's really important that we spend more time talking about stuff like this. You know, I have a lot of conversations with founders and CEOs who want to um, embark on a marketing journey and say, to me, what would you do first if I said, let's skip over the understand your audience piece? <laughs> I say, no, that's number one. It's got to be the first step. So really excited to talk about this with you today and hear your perspective. Oh, well, I I am always available for conversations like these. If, if you want to venture off into uh, more dangerous topic territory, I'm open to that too. Oh, well, we might. Let's see where we go today. <laughs> So let's start with, I mean, maybe we can start with the why, why it is so important to understand your audience before doing any kind of marketing strategy or planning, but also what are some of the key factors in, in under, like truly understanding who your target audience is? Yeah, I mean, the why is fairly simple. I think the problem is there's just a lot of fear about talking to customers. Um, mm -hmm. A whole bunch of people are scared of it, and and I, I want to provide some solutions there too. But uh, first, let, let's let me tackle that first question from you, Jen. So, why is it so important to understand your audience before you do marketing? And the simple answer is: the only job of marketing is to deeply understand your customers and tell them the right messages in the right places at the right times, so that they are aware and informed of the problem that you solve, why it's a painful problem they should care about, and why your solution is a good one. That's it. That's, that's all that marketing does. Mm -hmm. It's, it's uh, super simple. And there's no possible way to do those things well unless you understand where, are my, audi where my audience is. What, what does their customer journey look like? How do they learn about new things in our sector? Uh, we're launching a candy bar. How do people find out about candy bars? Mm -hmm. what, what's the distribution channels, right? Where, where, where do they go to discover that? Who are the types of people who are early adopters of new candy bars? And how do candy bars that have had success in the past spread? And what's going to make ours successful? And what do we need to do in terms of positioning the candy bar? Where's, where's some space that's open in that field that's going to be useful to us? Is, is our candy bar about the 
healthiness of it? Is it about something ecological? Is it about something about the taste of it? Is it about if you like X, you're going to love our Y? And you don't know these things until you go and do basically three things, right? So, so the whole process of audience research is essentially just it's surveys, interviews, and data at scale. Mm. Those are the only three things that that really matter that people need to do. Here's my here's my number one tip: if you are scared of doing uh, customer research, right, like reaching out to your customers or your audience and specifically asking them, "Hey, can we jump on the phone for thirty minutes?" Let me strongly recommend that you just hire somebody to do it for you. Mm -hmm. It's not hard. There's lots of people who do customer research that are excellent at it. I don't even do it myself. Spark Toro doesn't do it ourselves, right? We're an audience research company. And I have learned that when I talk to customers, they potential customers, they often treat me the same way that you do, Jen, which is with way too much kindness. I have I have heard that before, and there are um, you know books written about it, right? The mom test is one of my all time favorites. Of if you ask your mom if she's going to buy your product, she's always going to say, "Of course," you know. So there's tricks to asking questions in the right way, so you get honest answers. And people are too nice sometimes, and that is yeah. And hiring a professional, you, the other great thing about it. So we we work with uh, right now. We're working with Asia Arangio, who runs Demand Maven. And she is basically, I think she's done 31 or 32 customer interviews over the last month and a half. And essentially she, she records them too, right? So we can play them back and see. And she does this incredible thing that I, uh, my um, Hebraic neuroticism will not allow me to do, which is she lets people sit in uncomfortable silences until they give her more, mm. right? You'll see, like, I'll see this recording and she'll say, oh, tell me. Yeah, tell me more about uh, why why you care which websites your uh, customers visit. Like, what do you do with that data? You know, and there'll be a short answer, and then she'll just she'll just sit there and wait, and then they'll give her more, and that the more is always gold. It's yeah. it's like uncovering you know just these incredible insights that we can use in our product, and that um, inspire a bunch of features for us, and positioning, and inspire us for messaging, right? Because if if your customers all talk about a product or a feature or an idea that, or a problem the same way, you should use that language too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, so it's so interesting that the fear of talking to customers is very real. Some of the other um, objections I hear are: we don't have time right? We have to launch this now. We don't have time to actually truly understand our customers. <laughs> and the other one is we already, we already know. We already get them. We already understand our customer. So what are some of the, the ways you would maybe combat some of those objections? So I think the, the we need to launch now is almost always informed by because we need to have a certain amount of um, financial success or product success or adoption uh, in order to accomplish task X, right? Which could be, I don't know, we have to pay back our investors or we have to make payroll or we have to, um, you know, show a certain amount of growth to be able to raise our next round. Uh, and all of those things are reasonable. And I think it's fine to uncover the pressures that are driving those things. 
And then to say, well, what you need isn't just a fast launch. You also need it to be successful. If you launch in two weeks and it falls flat and it doesn't do well, that's going to be even worse than launching in four weeks and doing well. Yeah. So let's, what, what compromise are we willing to make? Um, sometimes the answer is none and that's okay. I don't, I don't know. I don't honestly mind anymore. I used to, um, in my younger years, try and convince everyone that they should do marketing a certain way or, or, or a certain way that I thought was right. And now, uh, if you don't want to do audience research and you're not bought into the idea that it's valuable and you don't understand why launching a campaign that has a higher chance of success is better for you. All right. Like <laughs> knock yourself out. Right. I, I, I'm not, um, I am not personally invested in this, in this project. And I think that sometimes people need to fail on their own terms before they can come around to something. That's such a, that's an important um, statement right there. And and that can be true of really any kind of any, not even just marketing. Oh uh, yeah. This is just a life lesson, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah Try, like, fail, learn from it, do better. Yes. <laughs> come to me when you're ready. Right. I, yeah. I think, I mean, um, I hear, I hear a lot of my friends, uh, in contentious relationships, <laughs> having, this, <laughs> having that same kind of thing, right? Where they're like, okay, I, maybe I just need to wait for them to find themselves, get to the right place. I think this is true for consultants and agencies and marketers. Sometimes they need to wait for the CEO or the leadership team or the CMO to um, make their mistakes, realize how painful it is, and then come back and say, okay, I really do need to understand where do my customers uh, pay attention to things? How did they learn about uh, these products or services? Where do they go to engage with this problem? What communities they pay attention to? What sources of influence are affecting them? Uh, and then how can I be present in those places with the right kind of message to drive the results I'm looking for? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you can see a lot of, you know, um, uh, down the road, our marketing isn't quite resonating or the message doesn't seem to be landing. Why is that? Then at that point, there's a kind of, oh, maybe we should go back and do a little bit of research. Um, and that's something I tell people all the time, too, is that it's not actually something that you do and finish and then move on to your next task. It's like an ongoing right? Like you don't have to get it perfect before you take your next step. And you also should be thinking about constantly reevaluating and making sure you still understand your customer and, and that they are the same customer that you researched six months ago or whatever, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think um, there are certain fields and certain audiences that change dramatically in short periods of time. Uh, what's a good example of that? Oh, a, a few years ago, this is not a space that I was particularly passionate about and, and I had lots of skepticism about it, but like the crypto and NFT crowd for the kind of four or five years that that was incredibly hot and, you know, millions of people were participating in those ecosystems. Um, that market was changing every month, right? There was, there was new technologies that were hot. There were new NFTs that were hot. There was new coins that were hot. There were new explanations for why, you know, the blockchain was going to be the basis of everything we ever did in the future uh, that were hot. And if you weren't paying attention, you would quickly fall behind. Right. And so mm -hmm. it was kind of a, a race to always be keeping up with that audience. If you compare that to, say, 
um, orthodontists buying equipment for their offices. That field changes quite slowly. Mm. You, you can do customer research once and probably feel pretty good about your messaging, positioning, channels, sources of influence for two or three years, right? And so you, you can revisit it at a, an annual cadence or even a biannual cadence and you're fine. And this is, that's going to be very different than, you know, um, I don't know, a SaaS product that's serving, you know, sort of uh, high tech, early stage founders, mm -hmm. because those, those audiences tend to move fast. They are very, you know, they're early adopters. There's a lot of churn in that market, right? Because 95% of all startups fail, mm. all that kind of stuff. So very, yeah. um, very much depends on who the audience is, whether you have to revisit uh, all that frequently. Yeah, for sure. And having a little bit of understanding of that will help you determine the cadence at which you need to. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. If you don't if you don't do it, you know, sequentially, like, OK, we're going to do an audience research project and then we're going to do it in six months or a year and we're going to see if there's massive change or, oh, no, that's not what happened. Look yep. at that. Uh, you know, this this audience barely changed at all. OK, I think we our cadence for audience research should be less frequent. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And um, but either way, you do have that sort of mindset of like, at some point, we'll be revisiting or, or learning more about about who our target audience is. Um, and, and you mentioned the three sort of ways that you can understand audience surveys, interviews, and data at scale. I want to dig into those a little bit. I think a lot of people, especially our audience here talking to insights, uh, teams and folks out there in the experience management space really understand surveys and, and maybe even a little bit of interviews, but data at scale. Um, tell me a little bit about how you think about uh, learning about customers using that data. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, surveys and interviews are pretty well understood, right? You're asking questions to an individual or to a group of people, and then you're trying to coalesce those. But there are lots of points of data where people, um, where people's answers that they would give you in a survey or an interview are not nearly as accurate as passively collecting that data at scale. Um, and that's for two reasons. One is it's not that people are lying to you, it's that they don't remember and that our memories and our answers have lots of bias in them, right? So if I say, hey, Jen, what were um, what were the last few podcasts that you listened to? Mm. Like you, you might recall a few. Are they going to necessarily be the ones that were influential to you in your customer journey around, you know, buying software or, or a candy bar? Or um, are they going to be ones that have recency bias? Are they going to be ones that you talk about because you think they make you sound good and smart and you're embarrassed about the ones that you actually listen to, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think this is this is very true when people talk about like the media they consume, books, television, TV shows, um, um, movies, right? All that kind of stuff. There's sort of the answer that you think a third party wants to hear. And then there's the reality of what, you know, your Netflix account actually shows. So passively collected data at, at scale is essentially going out to usually the internet, and looking at people's 
uh, real profiles and what their behavior is. So for example, um, you might say, oh, okay, well, a lot of my audience is on LinkedIn and they have this particular job title. I'm going to go and I'm going to visit 500 profiles of people who have that job title on LinkedIn. And I'm going to look at all the sources that they follow, right? Because you can go to the bottom of LinkedIn and it'll show like skills and interests and mm -hmm. what they follow and subscribe to and shared groups that you're in and all that kind of stuff, right? And then you might grab all of those. This is a, an arduous pain in the butt task. I recommend that no one ever does this because it just sucks. But then you, you know, you would manually take those and export the profiles to Excel, maybe, you know, maybe if you're savvy, you might install some uh, AI crawler in your browser so that you can extract that data more quickly, or you'd hire an engineer to go write some code to go do this. And this is what we saw people doing it in the early days of SparkToro. We were like, oh my God, these poor people are, you know, spending whatever, six, nine months building crawlers to go get data from yeah. LinkedIn or Facebook, or YouTube, or Reddit, or Twitter, whatever. And so we thought, well, we should just build that for the whole internet <laughs> so that you can just search it right away. And so uh, that is kind of what SparkToro and, and a few other companies do it. We're not the only ones. Um, Brandwatch has a really good enterprise version. So if you want like sales and support and, um, you know, someone who will jump through all the enterprise hoops, uh, you can pay Brandwatch a lot of money and get a very good product there. Um, or you could use something lower cost like SparkToro. Uh, Audience with an S uh, is in the middle of that. I think helixa.ai. Uh, there might be others, but it's not a very big field yet. But this audience research from passively collected data at scale is essentially about getting broad behavior from a huge group of people on the internet that you can reliably count on, right? Here's whatever, 1,100 orthodontists in the United States and you know, 12% of them visit this website and 10% of them subscribe to this YouTube channel and 6% of them uh, are fans of this podcast. And okay, great. I'm going to sponsor that podcast. I'm going to put that YouTube channel in my Google ads account. I'm going to uh, figure out how I can work with that website or do some PR with them, those kinds of things. I think that data is super powerful and how you describe the sort of like old manual way of capturing that information and the ability to do it at scale. I mean, it's so quick and so easy. Even the the comment earlier about, well, we don't really have time. Like it literally just takes minutes to this is, learn some it, of It's funny. Things. So Jen, like one of the things that's really uh, odd about SparkToro is that we um, philosophically were like really different than a lot of companies in that we, it's not that we don't care about churn, but we're very happy if a customer comes to us, uses the product once for like one day and then cancels their account and doesn't come back. Mm -hmm. As long as they got lots of value from it, that makes us quite happy. We're, we don't feel bad about that. Whereas, you know, nearly every other software business, um, especially all the venture backed ones or ones that are trying to raise venture, they have to look at their churn rate because all the VCs and investors are looking at their churn rate. And we don't really have to care about that. So. I think that this, you know, this is one of the, the unique things about us as a company that sort of makes the product useful for one-time users or people who do it once every year or two years. Great. Like come to us in two years when you need us again and you don't need to think about us in the meantime. Right. Yeah. Unless you want to. 
Yeah. And I, I'll just, I'll plug Spark, Spark Toro for a moment too, because I, for exactly what you're saying, I was lucky enough to be one of like the early beta users. And the yeah, first right. thing I noticed was I would get an email saying, we're about to charge your credit card. Are you sure you want to stick with us? Right. <laughs> and I was like, this is genius, right? Because I felt like very cared for, you know, yeah. I, I didn't feel as though I was um, a credit card. I felt like I was a, you know, a partner and that you were like looking out for me as a user and not wanting me to overpay for something I maybe wasn't using that month or something. So I can vouch for that, um, that being true for sure. <laughs> I I was thinking about this um, with regards to like Netflix or or uh, Amazon Prime or Hulu. Can you imagine how amazing it would be if Hulu sent you an email that said, hey, we noticed you didn't watch anything on our service last month. So here's a credit. Right. I, I would never quit. I, know. I would never unsubscribe from that service. I'd be like, oh my God, I, right. I think they actually care about me and they... This is amazing. Like, this is so incredible. I, I want to watch more shows on Hulu. I want them to wait, you know, whatever. Like, right. it's just a, um, a philosophical thing where I think that the, the subscription economy, um, I'm trying to remember who it was. I think it's Cory Doctorow who came up with the enshittification the, the of internet services, right? And, and tech services where essentially, you know, something will start out really great. And then over time, it becomes a financial play, um, either because of, of an IPO or because of how it's uh, invested in. And so you get this, you know, nickel and diming and mm -hmm. people trying to um, take your money at all costs, right? And and the service just gets worse, worse and worse and worse. And, right. Yeah. Exactly. So, exactly. Um, so the the data, going back to the data. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I told you the conversation was going to get spicy. I know. I love that. I love that. We can just talk about all different things today. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think it's really important, too, to just touch again on what you said about, you know, what people say they do versus what they actually do. And yeah. people are not so, lying on purpose. Sometimes no. there's like, I cannot remember what I had for breakfast yesterday. So I'm going to try my best to give you an honest answer. But reality is like, you know, actually seeing what I'm following on the internet or what I'm commenting on in social media is a more accurate representation than asking me to recall it. Ab so that's absolutely. super important to have both. Yeah, I just don't think, I, I don't think it's fair or reasonable to expect a human being to give you the sources of influence that they pay attention to in a field or about a problem or topic. Th that's a job for, you know, clickstream data and social media data and, you know, web crawl data and, and search data, like marry those things together at scale, you're going to get a far better answer. Uh, you know, which one is really popular, Jen, is the uh, lots of marketers talk about this. Whenever I talk about audience research, they always say, oh, yeah, you know what we do is we ask, we have a little survey after you check out on our website asking, how did you hear about us? And that's mm -hmm. incredibly valuable for us. So I've done a couple analyses of the, how did you hear about us? And uh, I think they are deeply problematic and very biased, mm -hmm. unfortunately. And, and that is because when people are recalling, you know, how did you hear about us? They, 
I don't think it's reasonable to expect that someone would remember accurately. I don't think it's even reasonable to expect that a large group of people whose answers taken together would reflect what the market does. Also, if there are sources of influence in your field that you are not present in, let's say that um, events are really big for in your space and you don't do any events, you never have booths, you never speak at events, you don't sponsor events, you don't go to events, you have no presence there, none of your team goes there, like you ignore the event side of your industry entirely, but events are a huge place where people learn about products and decide what to buy. This is very true, by the way, in our early example of like um, uh, dentistry and orthodontics and a bunch of medical stuff. Uh, guess what? No one who comes to your website will say, how did you hear about us? Oh, at this event. Right. You will never be able to break out and find new sources of influence if you are only asking people who already found you how they found you. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, anyway, you I just, I don't like, I don't like those. I don't really recommend them. I, it's fine. Some people love them and they get value out of them. I'm, I'm very worried that a bunch of people are considerably biased by that. And, and I'd be real careful. I think if you look at your, well, this is becoming less and less true. We, we can talk about the dark. You're, you're familiar with the dark social problem? The like. No. Oh. Um, so, for example, uh, it, we did a big study on this at, at SparkToro. Like, um, you know, uh, if someone clicks on a link from Twitter and comes to your website, your analytics will report that that user came from Twitter. Mm hmm but if they come from Mastodon, TikTok, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, Reddit, four or five others, YouTube, uh, they hide a percent or entirely the referral. TikTok, for example, hides all referrals. Right. Not a single person who clicked on a bio link from TikTok and came to a website is reported as having come from TikTok. TikTok intentionally obscures and obfuscates the referral string, and they also don't allow uh, URL parameters to pass. So there's a whole bunch of traffic on the internet that's flowing that in your analytics will look like direct yeah, yeah. or type in. Or not set. <laughs> yeah, not set. Nobody's typing in your dang URL. That's not what HTTPS colon slash slash com. <laughs> like, no, <laughs> didn't happen, right? right? Google hides a percent of the... Um, traffic that's sent to you, especially on mobile, right? Mobile, it's it's worse. Apps are terrible. A bunch of the apps pass no referral traffic. So we just set up like a ton of URLs on all these different services and then asked people to click on all of them and then looked at the refer string and did this big project and, and essentially now have this like breakdown of, hey, here's, here's who actually passes referral data and who doesn't. And so you're getting all this biased information yeah. right from this. And I think it's very similar with the question, how did you hear about us? Mm -hmm. Right. You're just getting biased information, misinformation. Um, I, I did an analysis for an e-commerce retail uh, company. This is a few years ago now, but you know, we looked at all the responses to how did you hear about us? <laughs> and like four of the top 10 were sources of influence where they had never been mentioned. <laughs> right? oh, they wow. were like, oh, I heard about you from this YouTuber. And so we were like, oh, cool. And we went and checked out that YouTuber. Nope. Mentioned. Which is which is fair, right? Like a human being could be, oh yeah, I think I heard about this, 
you know, great product from this YouTuber that I follow. And then, oh no, it was actually this other person or right. nope, you heard about it from a friend. You just conflated yeah. the two. That happens all the time. No yeah. one's to blame for it. Sure. Right. But you just can't rely on that type of data. It's, it's a bad idea. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's it's not enough, right? Maybe it could be a part of a whole. If you've got a, a really comprehensive research and sort of this continuous discovery type approach happening, then it, that could be a piece of data that is valuable as long as you're you are aware of the pitfalls of that data. Um, totally. I mean, yeah, if, to our example earlier, right? Like if your product gets... Um, mention is very popular on this TikTok channel or whatever, and it happens to pass some some traffic. This is extremely unlikely because TikTok intentionally makes it really hard to click on anything and they don't want you to click on anything. But if that were the case, right? And then you saw a spike in people mentioning, you know, that TikTok influencer or whatever as the source, you could be, oh, okay, that person, maybe, maybe we do a sponsorship with them. Maybe we feature ask them if we can feature them in some of our advertising. Maybe we see how they talked about us that was so compelling and we use some of that insight in our messaging in the future. You know, whatever it is, right? You could get some value. I'm not saying it's imp impossible to get value from those. I just, I get real scared when people say, oh yeah, we ask how people find us and that's where we choose to invest our marketing. Oh my God, come on. Yeah, yeah. I mean- Bias in, bias out. Right. We could even get into question wording being a problem or not having the right answer right. choices or not giving an other or a whatever, you know, there's so many ways that that could produce. Yeah. That. How do you, how did you hear about us is a very different question from uh, how did you get to our site today? Yeah. Yes. Right? Oh, totally. You know, one is, well, I want, I'm trying to learn the first time you heard about us, yes. which might actually be quite different from how did you find out about the problem that we solve? Mm -hmm. Because that's where we should have been present. Yeah. But instead, we only found out and we're only investing at this, you know, deeper phase of the sort of marketing funnel and uh, yeah. bias in, bias out. Totally, totally. And I, you know, I had this question sort of on my list of like, I wanted to ask you, and I think we've maybe covered it. <laughs> like, what are the, some, some of the, um, the common mistakes that businesses make when trying to understand customers. But I think that's such a great example of like yeah, asking bias yeah. questions or maybe uh, relying too heavily on the wrong data. Yeah, I think um, I think that another one uh, that's quite dangerous from the from the customer research perspective is uh, exclusively serving and interviewing your existing customers rather than people who haven't bought from you or haven't heard of you yet. Because again, you you miss this you know big part of the funnel that you might be uh, ignoring, and um, you might be missing a huge you know huge source of influence. You might be missing channels. You might be missing tactics. You might be missing messaging. Right? Maybe you're saying something that's turning off eighty percent of your potential right. you know gold customers, and you don't realize it because you're only talking to the twenty percent. Right. So, um, I see this a lot with. Uh, I'm going to call it like stereotyping and you can see it a bunch in, um, I think, especially historically, a, a common example is like gender biased advertising, mm -hmm. right? So Lego is a, is a good example where Lego in the 60s, 70s, 80s, right? 
no, sorry, 70s, 80s, um, they were, they thought only boys liked Lego. Mm -hmm. And so they were missing more than half their market. My understanding is today, uh, girls and young women make up more than 50% of Lego's sales to people under 18. Oops. Right. <laughs> right. It's just, oh, well, you were only missing probably billions of dollars by, you know, focusing yeah. on an audience because you made an assumption about who was in there. Yes. Right. I love that example. I just last year was had the the opportunity to sit in the audience of somebody in Consumer Insights at Lego talking about how they expanded their product lines, not only by gender, but also age. So yes. how there's all these new lines that are geared toward adults. It's no longer a toy for young boys. It mm -hmm. is a toy for all genders, all ages, all people, and how that really expanded their business and all of the research that went into discovering that. Um, because oh, they found cool. that there were people using their products that they were not advertising to which is kind of lucky <laughs> in and of itself but the research did you do you recall what did they what did they do what was what was their research process so there, there was a lot of survey work and um and interviewing to determine like well why did you buy this who did you buy this for what did you use it for um and surveying of target audience like parents of young girls to understand, well, what would you want? What type of product mm -hmm. would you want that would make you, you know, there, it, it was sort of aligned with this um, sort of movement of women in STEM and girls in STEM. And like, actually, there's this like sort of engineering minded young girl who wants to play with Legos. And so they launched things like the Friends line, which you know, I might have my own issues with that. It's like kind of all pink and girls and whatever, but it did like draw into a broader audience. Um, I like to see young girls building like transformers and stuff like yeah. that too. <laughs> um, no, but I mean, I think that's, I think that's amazing. Well, and uh, so the Lego uh, movie, I think was, in part, like trying to break some of the stereotypes and then unfortunately, I think reinforcing others, right? Because it's a, you know, the kid and the dad. But um, I was thinking of the Barbie movie, which, you know, broke a billion dollars by appealing to everyone. Yeah. Like yeah. I, I wanted to go see the Barbie movie. I, when, you know, when we went to the theater, it was at least as many men as women, right? And this is a, I mean, Barbie is still an incredibly gendered product. But the movie, because it was this remarkably weird and um, sort of very artistic critique of the of the Barbie culture and the idea of it and the, um, you know, it was, it was almost like, I don't think this is quite true, but it felt to me like it was pushing the boundaries of third wave feminism um, mm -hmm. in some really cool ways and. Yeah. yeah, I just, I, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. And we went, yeah, you know, we went with um, my co-founder, Casey, uh, and his his two girls who are uh, eight and 11, right? And, oh, perfect. And they, it was great. So they, they keep leaning over to me. Oh, no, they're younger than that. Sorry. Uh, six and 10. Six, okay. No, maybe seven and 10. So they keep leaning over to me. They're like, Uncle Rand, what's fascism? <laughs> 
<laughs> You're like, I'll explain it later. Yeah. What, what's a gynecologist? <laughs> what's the patriarchy? <laughs> what, that's, that was exactly one of, yes. What was the, what's the patriarchy? What's, uh, can't remember exactly what Ryan Gosling says he wants from Barbie. At the um, What's a low commitment, short term, long distance side piece? <laughs> I was like, okay, we're, we'll break that one down after the movie. Right. There's a lot of stuff that, that went over the young ones' heads, but it did really a, good, a great job of appealing to all ages, all genders, all people. And, and, and this is, I mean, this is part of that like audience and customer research is that if you can, if you can find, hey, people are familiar with our product, they have ideas around it, and we would now like to expand the group of people that we appeal to, what do we need to do to get there? Right. Mm -hmm. And, and so I think another answer to your, what's a big problem that people make in customer research is they think about customer research as a marketing problem mm. and not a product problem. And you cannot divorce these two things. I don't, I honestly don't believe that marketing and product are, can be separated and successful when they right. work in concert together. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. Right. Wonderful. I totally agree. Um, yeah. I, and I, think, I think too, one of, one of the things I've seen that's interesting is when uh, companies embark on any sort of research um, program for their customers, they're often thinking about their own product and their, the problem that they solve, which is important to have that context. But I think sometimes miss the broader what is the problem that this person is trying to solve, whether or not you solve that problem, right? Yes. So I think having that understanding, even if you were to say like, well, I'm not gonna solve their biggest problem, you still need to know what it is so that you can figure out how to fit in, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I talk all the time about audience research, right? And, and customer research and like figuring out what people want, where they are and all that kind of stuff. And SparkToro only solves one problem, the data at scale piece. The other two surveys and interviews, like we don't really help with. Maybe you can get some data at scale that would help inform how you do design surveys or what you ask people in interviews. Sure, but that's not a part of what we do. And yet, I think I would be foolish, just absolutely dumb, not to understand what people do with surveys and interviews, how they get value from those, why they're doing them, how to do them better. I'm uh, right now I'm doing a project with Typeform where we're creating an audience research survey like together. And then we're going to sort of launch it together and do a webinar around it. And it's SparkToro isn't going to directly benefit from that. Right. It's not a thing that our product solves. It's actually a blind spot almost. Right. You could say like it's a weakness, but by leaning into that, I think we're going to do better for our customers, uh, both from a product building perspective and from a marketing perspective. Yeah, for sure. I think understanding the uh, the alternatives, I think it's Teresa Torres who talks about this really clearly. And I love um, kind of her description of like, oh no, nope, I'm making it up. It's not Teresa Torres, it's April Dunford as she talks oh, yeah. about uh, positioning. And she, um, you know, talks about understanding the alternative solution to the problem, not the direct competitor, but like, how are they solving that problem today? It could be the worst possible way you could ever solve that problem, but you've got to know what it is. It could be that they've hired an intern to go on LinkedIn and scan the bottoms of people's profiles and 
pull out the pages that they're following, right? And understanding that in the context of what you do is just as important as competitive research or, or why they would care about your product or whatever. Um, so I think there's just like this broadening of a lens that's super important in audience research that sometimes um, companies miss. Yeah, uh, no doubt about that. And um, absolutely, uh, sorry, obviously awesome, which is, which is April's uh, first book. I think she's almost done with her second book. Um, but that one was very eye-opening from for me, and I think for a ton of people. If you don't already own it, you should yeah. you should definitely get that book. Highly recommend. We'll link out to it. It's such a it's a. It's I have a it on the book. shelf somewhere here, but I can't remember what color it is. <laughs> I see. You know, I am I'm jealous of your rainbow bookshelf. All, most of my great books are in Kindle, so I <laughs> I don't have the gorgeous rainbow bookshelf. But maybe one day I'll aspire to. To go that route. So I love it. I love it for two reasons. What I mean, one is the the visuals of it, but also um, a lot of folks. I love helping you know authors succeed. And when I when I really like a book, I like to be able to grab it and then like take a picture of myself and share it on social and you know help that author do better. I think I think this is one of our you know one of your obligations if you've sort of done well in the world from a whatever financial or influence standpoint is to like, oh, well, if you like something, go help the people who made it reach more people. Yeah. It yeah. feels natural to me. I love that. It's very a generous way of looking at, at the world. Um, I mean, so many people, so many people in my, you know, early career and even now, right? Like, look, you're having me on your show and you're talking, you're saying all these nice things about SparkToro and like, <laughs> why? Like, I don't know what I did to deserve that, but I better pay it forward. Yeah. I mean, I, I hope this is the I hope this is the world we create for the next generation. I love that. I think that's a great plan. We're gonna do that. <laughs> so let me ask all of this work that we're doing now to understand audiences, what are some of the ways that you measure the success of doing that? We talked earlier mm -hmm. about, you know, you don't want to do it, that's fine. Some of the things might not work out so well. How do you know that your efforts have paid off? Yeah, uh, this has gotten much, much harder recently um, for a few reasons, right? W one is, especially when it comes to digital marketing, um, essentially what's happened over the last few years is that the, the big tech platforms have decided to hide a lot of the like, like referral data, but also attribution data. And they're using privacy like privacy now as a, as a guise for pulling things like third-party cookies, which allowed you to track sort of people over multiple visits and see what, what, what does that full customer journey look like? Um, this is almost, almost 10 years ago now in 2014, 15, I did this big project when I was running Moz where we looked at, Hey, what is a full customer journey to Moz look like? How, you know, hmm. what are all the sources people use to reach us? What are the keywords that they search for? Um, how do they first find us? How do they find us on the visit where they sign up for a free account? How do they find us when they sign up for uh, their first, you know, free trial, all that kind of stuff. And we had this huge like analysis. It was fantastic, Jen. Like what was possible back then was incredible. And marketers, a ton of us are still trained that that's how you do it, right? You have full funnel attribution, anything you can attribute and, you know, assign a percent of contribution to, that doesn't count. And so you will never, you will never attribute your success to a ton of the things that have real influence on real people, right? Things like word of mouth 
and PR and a lot of the social media and organic uh, stuff that you know drives re referral lacking traffic. Keywords, keywords in Google are no longer available if you're ranking for them organically. So you don't know what someone searched for when they got to your site. You only know the page that they landed on. All this kind of stuff is just nightmarish for visibility and attribution. Yeah. The, the thing that I am urging people to do, um, and I've been talking about this a ton this year, I have a big presentation that I've been giving at a lot of conferences called the end of attribution. And the, the only solution is we have to go back a little bit to the 20th century style of measurement, right? So just imagine with me, right? We're, you know, whatever, Don Draper at his ad agency and, and it's 1960 and we're going to work with Coca-Cola and run a bunch of billboards on Michigan Avenue in Chicago. There's no attribution, no attribution at all. The way that they decided whether they were going to keep running those billboards and whether they were going to put them on, um, you know, Fifth Avenue in New York and put them on Pike Street in Seattle and put them in Detroit. And the only way that they decided was measurement. We're going to look at, you know, we're going to run this in Chicago and Michigan Avenue, and we're going to look at the, you know, surrounding five miles where we know that most of the people who drive and we're going to look at same store sales month over month and year over year. And if we see a lift, well, then we're going to run that same uh, billboard campaign in, you know, Detroit and Milwaukee. And if we see similar lift, we're going to run it nationwide. That's it. That's the only thing that you can do in a world where attribution has been lost and, and where it's, it's not just been lost. It's worse than lost. It's biased. It is biased mm -hmm. because Google and Facebook and Amazon and Apple will guarantee that they will give you attribution on all the ads that you run on your platform, on their platforms. On theirs. Yeah. Yeah. Guess what, friends? That's not where all your customers are coming from. Right? They are they are lying to you because if they do, you will spend more with them. Right. Try turning off those ads. Try turning off some of those ads for some percent of time and then go look at your traffic, go look at your conversions, and you'll be like, gosh, 92% of our conversions are still here. I think that all Google was really doing was putting their ads in front of people that they knew were already going to buy our product. Yeah. That's their whole freaking model. Yeah. Yeah. That's always been my biggest complaint. Even, I mean, years ago with brand ads, right? Like purchasing your own brand name as a search term in Google, right? Like if you're already ranking organically. It's just a tax, right? Yeah. 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 And I, I mean, listen, if you're in a very competitive market and you have a lot of competitors bidding against you on your own brand term, I can see a, a defensive kind of position to do that. But but you're right. Google has created that environment where that's required. I mean, it's such a mafia move, right? Like yeah. it is so it is so like, oh, you want to go down the street? Well, it would be a shame if these three other streets here were to we were to send you over there, you know, like but they're paying us more. I, it's. It's oh, madness. Like it's it's one of those things where if you imagine an intelligent lawmaking body around the internet, they'd be like, we 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 can't allow that. Like that yeah. that should absolutely not be the case. If someone searches for whatever marketing demystified, send them to marketing demystified. Like that's your job. You don't 
charge them to appear for their own brand name or threaten them that their competitors will show up if they don't. That's just... <laughs> yes. It poses a really big challenge for marketers because, I mean, the, with attribution getting harder and harder and harder and marketing being tapped as the problem solvers for all business problems oftentimes, <laughs> you know, what, how are you fixing all of our growth issues, right? Um, and proving that what you're doing is working, like you have to prove that the the budget is performing and is turning into revenue and, and there are ways to do it, um, but it is getting so much harder than it ever was to track where that traffic is coming from, why, it, how it got there and, and yep. being able to replicate that and scale it, which is, I think, a lot of feedback that a lot of CMOs get today, like, you know, show me something that works and you'll have unlimited budget to scale it, right? Um, it's really hard to do that today in the digital environment that we're in. Yeah, I mean, the, I think the conversation you have to have is the big tech companies who, you know, have funded the research that's gone into making GDPR happen and California's privacy laws and the changes to Firefox and Safari and Chrome that, that prevent all of these channels that obviously have influence, that obviously drive traffic, that obviously turn into conversions from being attributable as such, mm -hmm. you, you have to change your behavior around demanding attribution, or you're just going to throw money at these big tech platforms, uh, which are the most competitive, hardest spaces to get an ROI on and you're going to miss out on all these other channels and opportunities and someone else is going to take that from you. And if, if those CMOs don't understand it, I don't know, I'd, I'd pitch somebody else, right? <laughs> take your talents elsewhere. Yeah. That, uh, that's fundamental. That understanding has to be fundamental to any type of marketing program. And, and then I think the next conversation is, well, we can't invest in things that we can't measure and measurement is different than attribution. Sure. Right. I can say to you, hey, I produced 40 videos for LinkedIn this year. They had this many impressions. They uh, resulted in, you know, this many people. You can see our follower count grow growing. You can see the number of people who see our videos growing. You can see the engagement on them growing. You can see the comments growing. You can see the titles of people who are commenting. We're engaging the right audience there. And look at our traffic. The traffic to the things that we talked about in the videos is going up. It's all direct, right? It's We can't prove that it came from LinkedIn, but we can sure measure and like show the progress of this grew and then this grew and then conversions and sales grew. Yeah. Right? And so you're, you're making um, estimates and guesses, but that's the only thing that the big tech platforms have left us. For sure. Yeah. And I think there is like, actually, one of my favorite things to do anyways, is to apply sort of a, a implied attribution on yeah. top of direct traffic, right? And look at what what did we do that day? What, we saw this spike in traffic on our website, direct traffic, people typing in our URL. So why did they do that that day? Oh, we won an award and we announced it on LinkedIn or, oh, we hosted a webinar or... Now those are behaviors we want to do more of, or we want to produce more content like that because it's going to drive more direct traffic. It's more of a measure actually of awareness and brand than it is of demand gen. And it's putting more um, 
maybe more faith in the brand work that marketers are doing because that can actually be measured in a different way. Um, and I think too, in like what you were describing with like regional, okay, we've got these billboards, let's look at stores. That's the, you know, a, a case for account-based marketing in my mind, right? Like how are we getting more traffic to our website from people at this brand, right? Because we are dedicating ourselves to advertising to them and maybe we don't see them exactly clicking, but we see progress and growth from that uh, customer or something, right? Yeah. Um, there's creative ways to do it. And, and to your point, it's, it's measuring it. Maybe it's not a direct or a first touch, last touch attribution model, but it is something you can look at and point to and say, this is working and this is not. And that's really what you need in order to make those decisions of what to do more or less of. Yep. And uh, yeah, so audience research is at the core of this. These sources of influence influence our audience, right? We know they read these publications, go to these events, watch these, uh, you, subscribe to these YouTube channels, uh, follow these people on social, visit these websites, whatever. Let's be present in those places and then let's measure what happens afterward. Yeah. It's gonna be measurement, not attribution, but it's also insanely cheaper. It's so much cheaper than advertising, than digital advertising, that very frankly, you can waste 80% of your organic investment, brand marketing, content marketing budget, and you will still have a higher return on investment from your marketing spend in those channels than you do with digital ads, which is essentially, you know, the model that Google and Apple and Amazon and everybody wants is you spend a dollar with us uh, and we'll give you $1.01 of margin. <laughs> yeah. Right. They essentially want to take all the margin from every business on earth and funnel it to themselves. Yeah. That's that's why advertising uh, on these platforms is such a popular model. That's why, you know, folks like Apple are entering the game. Amazon obviously entered the game. Right. Facebook became huge because of their advertising. Google, too. And yeah. they, you know, it's very cheap for them uh, to take those ad dollars and they can both influence policy and change technology to to make sure that that you get there that way. Yeah. I'll be really interested to watch how that evolves over the next five years or so. Um, you know, I, I have a feeling it's uh, it's we're on the cusp of some major change um, in that world. So, yeah, I mean, the, the complete death of third party cookies is next year, right, right. with Chrome. So maybe that'll finally nudge a lot of marketers to get to a more measurement centric place. Um, but I, to be honest, I don't think so. I think most businesses are just going to keep throwing dollars at big tech uh, mm. for the privilege of attribution that they've become used to. And it's going to take like a generational shift, sort of like how in the late nineties, early two thousands, you know, it took 12 years, 15 years past when internet adoption and penetration was dominant for media dollars to move from sure. television, radio, billboard, print to digital. Mm -hmm. And I think this is going to be the same thing. It's just people get set in their ways. Companies keep working how they used to work. Um, yeah. Yeah. And to a point you made earlier, there's pressure from non-marketers in the business and your boards and your VCs and, you know, to show me this, show me you're doing this, you know, um, 
and sometimes you don't have a choice, <laughs> but to, Absolutely. we've got to well, choose our battles. <laughs> yeah, this is this is often why these big shifts are when incumbents lose out and oh. new startups, new businesses that are savvier, right? Marketers who leave their big tech job and are like, yeah, you know what? I know how to build up this thing. Right. I don't know. I, I can see the direction the wind's blowing and then they they start something new. And so there's there's a lot of opportunity right now, too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're going to keep our eye out and see what happens. That's one of the things I love about marketing. It's always changing. There's always something new. So we'll see what happens. But thank you so much for coming on today and talking about audience research and data at scale. This is a great conversation as always. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure, Jen. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks, everyone, for listening in. I'm going to be back with another episode next week when I chat with Jesse Pirwal of PagerDuty. We'll see you then.